0: Hello, Eurocron fans. This is your host Scott Pitney. Welcome to another edition of Eurocron. As always, this is about extraordinary people, but as a bonus, we're also including extraordinary places. Enjoy.
1: All right, so I'm chatting with Cooper. He's going to be our tour guide here at Wrigley Field. Uh, how long you been doing this, Cooper? I've been here since 2019. That was my first
2: year, and then we took a year off, and now I just got back a little while ago. Okay,
1: so it's my first time that, you know, we're from Houston, mm-hmm. Astros. Uh, used to be in the same league, not anymore, but right. anyway, uh, obviously a historic stadium, so we're looking forward to this. Uh, kind of give us an idea of what to expect on a uh, stadium tour at Wrigley. Stadium tours, we're going to start out in the seating Bowl. We'll
2: talk a lot of history Um, and the main big attractions today we're going to get to see. We're going to go down uh, to the warning track and see the Ivy. So we'll get up close and personal with that. Uh, We'll also go out to the bleachers and talk about the bleacher bums. Great fans that were out there. We'll go into the upper deck and talk about Harry Carey and the press box. And then we'll also go down um, onto the field uh, and into the Cubs dugout to finish it off.
1: Oh, excellent. And uh, how about the locker rooms? Any chance of getting in there?
2: Uh, no, unfortunately not. I haven't even been
1: in the Cubs locker room, so uh, I don't have the, we don't have the clearance level. So. Okay, reason I ask, we toured Fenway and we actually got into the dugout. There was another uh, interesting feature there at uh, Fenway, they, on top of the roof they had their own vegetable garden, which they actually used the vegetables as part of the food supply. Are we going to see any interesting things like that, any surprises like that?
2: Uh, we do have some vegetables growing in the ivy. No, that's a joke. Don't <laughs>
1: put no no vegetable gardens on top. No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Well, uh, thanks for looking forward to it. And uh, what about um, just around the general area? If anybody's thinking of coming and taking a tour, not actually being able to see a Cubs game like us, but taking a tour, what do you recommend in terms of parking? Maybe some places to eat afterwards. Just everything outside of the uh, tour.
2: Um, parking. There's only a few. There's only a few lots around the area. Um, Most of the time people use street parking or the help of friends during games. As far as eating goes, the one place I always recommend is Murphy's Bar uh, because it's a classic Chicago bar. It's not super touristy. You can get your Chicago dog and uh, eat right right outside of Wrigley. So
1: very cool. And uh, let's talk about the apartments a little bit across the street. Uh, So we got a picture of those. I had no idea like they built true seating on top of the roof. Uh, Have you ever been up there? I have not, but I have friends who have. Uh, from what I hear,
2: uh, it's like one to $200 a ticket, all you can eat, all you can drink. Uh, it kind of depends on uh, which rooftop you get, how what the ticket price is, because some of them are blocked by the scoreboards now. Um, but I hear it's a pretty good time despite a pretty distant view of, the, of yeah. the game. And how
1: about the apartments themselves? Do you know anybody that lives there or have any idea how much it costs uh, for an apartment there? I'm not
2: sure, but I, do, I did know a group of uh, college students that, I think it was college students, that lived in an apartment there. Uh, I only know they're college students because they would wave at us during the tours uh, from their window. So
1: Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, what about uh, if you wanted to stay at a hotel? I see the Hotel Zachary right across the stadium. Uh, any recommendations as far as hotels where to stay around here?
2: Uh, I, the Hotel Zachary is really nice and really close. Uh, you could definitely stay there. Most people I know decide to stay closer to downtown and then they take the red line up because um, just because it's a little cheaper hotel option but the hotel zachary is an excellent place to stay yeah and so
1: obviously chicago's been in the news a lot with shootings and stuff like that but uh is that just i mean well, the area we're we're in this seems pretty safe here
2: this is very safe yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. this is a very a very safe area um especially during the
2: daytime but even at night it's, it's a safe area to be around yeah, yeah.
1: Well, thanks for chatting with us. Look, look, looking forward to the
0: tour, Cooper. Thanks. Course, yeah. Thanks. Have yeah. a right. good one. <laughs> Appreciate
2: it. Go your Attention up here, uh, my name's Cooper. <clears throat> I'm gonna be your tour guide today. We're gonna get going for the noon tour. Thank you guys so much for coming out to Wrigley on this beautiful day. Good to see you guys. Uh, so I have. T- The easiest job of anybody here at Wrigley. I get to lead you guys around and talk about baseball and Cubs and Wrigley history. I have the easy job today. The guy that has the hard job is the cool guy with glasses back there, blue jacket. That's Brian. Brian is my muscle today. He's gotta keep you guys all together, keep you in line. Uh, It's real easy to do that. Um, Also, he's a great tour guide in his own right, so if you have any questions uh, towards the back, you can direct them to him uh, as well. Uh, now a couple ways to make Brian's job super easy you guys are feel to so feel free to take uh pictures at any point along this tour even as we're walking just don't be the person that's holding up the whole group uh, don't be the person that's 500 yards back taking a picture i've seen it i promise you if you're 500 yards back brian will be about one foot away from you giving you a look so uh, just make sure you stay with the group as you move around a couple things to keep in mind we do have a homestand coming up so you'll smell the hot dogs and people getting ready uh, for the games in a couple days we'll have forklifts moving around and things moving so just uh be mindful as you move around this historic ballpark uh, but I think that is about it. Are you guys ready to see Wrigley Field? Yeah. Awesome! Yeah. That's, that's a mild oh, dude, What do you think? Woo! Thank you. This is an amazing ballpark you guys are sitting at. I just want to make sure you appreciate it, right? This is the second oldest ballpark in the Major Leagues. It was built in 19. 19- Fourteen. Uh, Boston fan Anybody, to, anybody the right. to Boston? You guys have the whole plenty of you guys. You guys have the oldest one. That's Fenway, right? That was built in 1912. Anybody know the third oldest?
3: Ah, Dodgers. Man. Dodgers. That's right. Yeah. Dodger fans. 1962.
2: Right. Ah, one. So there are very. There's a big gap in between those two ballparks and the rest of them. Fifty more. years. So you don't see a lot of ballparks that look like this. And now, of course, Dodger Stadium and all those stadiums built in the 60s have history in their own right, but we have so much history here at Wrigley. I mean, just to mention a few things, right? Because I'll be talking about history for the whole tour. Jackie Robinson played at this ballpark. Babe Ruth's famous called shot happened right out there on home plate. One of the most famous moments in baseball history and sporting history happened right here at Wrigley. Now, it may surprise you to know that this place wasn't even built for the Cubs initially, nor was it built for anybody named Wrigley. This place was built for a man named Charlie Wiegman. Charlie Wiegman was a great businessman back in those uh, 1910s in that era. He was a restaurant owner and a movie theater owner as well. And uh, But his dream was always to own a baseball team. And so he wanted to own a baseball team, but the sad thing was he was new money. People often compare him to Mark Cuban, you know, that's sort of his personality. And so, uh, the people in the National League, the local teams, wouldn't let him buy their ball clubs. He tried to buy the Cubs, they said no. He tried to buy the White Sox, they said no. He was even so desperate that he tried to buy the St. Louis Cardinals.
0: (laughs) How sad is that? (laughs) right?
2: He could not be able to buy a baseball team. So, but he was an entrepreneur, right? So he had a winning spirit, he said fine. If you won't let me have one of your teams, I'll start my own. He started a team called the Chicago Federals and he started his own league called the Federal League in 1914 and he moved them in here to the original ballpark that was here called Beegman Park in 1914. Now, as you can imagine, that original park didn't exactly look like this, right? There have been plenty of renovations done. It was just a lower bowl of seats that sat about 14, 15,000 people. And if you can believe it, back then, they didn't even have an outfield wall it was just a wide open space into a cornfield, and they held up a rope that would determine what was a ground rule double and what was a home run. We'll talk about that a little more when we get out into the bleachers. Now, Charlie and his Chicago Federals did pretty well their first season. They finished second in the Federal League. It's not bad, right? But the problem was. They had trouble getting fans into this ballpark. It's no real surprise there. We had two ball clubs already in the city of Chicago. The White Sox were playing on the south side, and the Cubs at that time were playing at the west side Ground, sort of uh, by where the United Center is today. And so uh, he thought he had to spice things up. So what he did was he held a naming contest for the team. He thought the team name was a little bit boring. The I mean, Chicago Federals in the Federal League, it's almost like if you – would have named your team the Nationals in the National League. (laughs) Who would do that, right? So, he uh, held the naming contest. The number one name chosen, written in by fans, the Chicago Chickens.
3: There's a
2: theory that some Cubs fans might have stuffed the ballot boxes on that one. Uh, So Charlie was furious, of course, at this result. He's not going to name his new team the Chickens, so he took the second place option, the Chicago Whales, named, of course, for our thriving freshwater whaling industry. It's just just a better name than chickens, and back then, it meant, you know, whale meant the hottest show in town, sort of like slang term. So the Chicago Whales played here, 1915, they did extremely well. They won the Federal League Championship. No applause, that's that's okay, that's okay. I don't need pity applause, that's all right. You guys probably haven't heard of that before, and that's okay but it does have some historical significance. That is the only baseball championship to ever be secured on these grounds, right? So the Cubs played baseball for a long time. They have three World Series, 1907, 1908. Those were secured at the West Side grounds, and then we took some time off, (laughs) and we won the 2016 World Series out in Cleveland. So it's the only one to be won right here on these grounds. Even more special, that was the last Federal League Championship to ever be played. Unfortunately, the league ran into money troubles and they had to go out of business. So 1916 comes around and Charlie's got this beautiful new ballpark and nobody to play in it. So he had to get thrifty again. He got a couple of investors to get, uh, together, Roebuck of Sears and Roebuck, Armour of Armour Meats and then a, a chewing gum salesman named William Wrigley Jr. So they bought the Cubs and moved them in here in 1916 and the Cubs have been playing here ever since. Now, uh, Charlie did, made a lot of great strides in baseball. A couple of uh, innovations. He was the guy, first guy to let fans keep foul balls. Uh, back then, if you caught a foul ball, an usher would take it from you to use for the game. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore, obviously. Anybody here ever caught a foul ball? Oh, a couple people, that's awesome, cool. I've never done it, I'll have to live through you, I guess, that's curious. Um He was also a person who championed putting uh, concession stands back in the concourse. He thought having the vent- only the vendors out front was kind of loud and distracting from the game. So he did contribute to a lot of innovations in the game, even though he was only around until about 1918, 1919. Uh, so as I mentioned, he was a restaurant owner. 1919, Spanish influenza sweeps through Chicago. People couldn't go out to restaurants, couldn't go out to his movie theaters. They had to stay six feet apart, wear a mask. It's an experience I can't imagine going (laughs) through. So uh, unfortunately, Weigman had to get out of the business and the Wrigleys bought up all the shares in the team and became the sole owners in 1920. So 1920 comes around. We obviously can't call this place Weigman Park anymore, right? So what did we call it? Wrigley Wrong, wrong, Cubs Park. We called it Cubs Park for six more years. Until 1926, they changed it to Wrigley Field uh, naming it after the chewing company. I always think it's funny, you know, people come here and say, it's oh, it's so nice to be in a, um, a family-named ballpark. None of that corporate stuff like Guaranteed Rate or <laughs> American Family in- Home Insurance or whatever it is, it's a long one. Um, this is actually the first corporately named ballpark in baseball. It's just a little bit more catchy than Guaranteed Rate, right? Yeah. So the Wrigley's owned it for a long time. Up until 1981, they sold the team to the Chicago Tribune for $20.5 million. And then the Trib sold it to the Ricketts family in 2009 for $800 million. Pretty solid profit there. Um, Now, the Ricketts have added a lot of great renovations. I mean, we've added these billboards up here when i saw my first game 10 years ago those billboards were not here um and they've also poured a lot of investment into the structure of this place and into the team value of course we won our 2016 world series that hotel zachary that you saw up front beautiful hotel that was just a parking lot and a mcdonald's not that long ago um the gallagher building i believe 20 years ago it was a car wash i even saw you'll see there's a taco bell cantina with a chase bank on tap that was just a taco bell when i left before the pandemic in March 2020. So this place is growing rapidly and the team value has gone up quite a bit as a result. So any guesses as to how much the Cubs are worth today as a sports organization? 1.2 billion. 1.2 billion, that's not bad. Think for 3.4 billion, $3.4 billion. Funny thing about that actually, before March, on March 9th, uh, 2020, we were worth $3.4 billion. Then um, me and a couple of the tour guides on March 10th got furloughed and our value went to 3.3 billion, weird. And then we came back about a month ago and we shot back up to 3.4, it's an odd thing, right? Uh, no, it's because of the renovations that all went up. But we are gonna see a lot of those cool renovations today and we'll get to see a lot of historical spots as well. Um, our next stop is actually gonna be down by the Ivy. Uh, we'll get down onto that warning truck. we'll get to talk about the Ivy quite a bit. We'll also get out into the bleachers. We'll be able to talk about a lot of the landmarks we have at Wrigley Field, and we'll uh, touch on the bleacher bums, some of the greatest fans in baseball. And then we're going to make a walk up to the upper deck where we'll stop by uh, the outside of the visitor's clubhouse and talk about that. Um, And then we'll stop in the upper deck to talk about Harry Carey and some of the other people who have made their way through the press box. And then if we have time, if you guys want to, we'll go down into the – uh, dugout and also onto the field, but that's only if that's something we're interested in. Are you, do you guys. Okay, you seem cool with that. All right, we'll make you stop that. All right. So, uh, any questions before we move on? How
3: old is that scoreboard?
2: How old is that scoreboard? That scoreboard was built in 1937, uh, and the only renovation to it was that clock on top of it. Um, which was put in for football because, you know, we don't need time for baseballs, right? So they put that up there uh, for when the Bears played here because the Chicago Bears called this place, place home for about 50 years. Any other questions before we move on? How did
1: they get their name, the Cubs, or did I miss that?
2: How did they get their name, the Cubs? It's, it's kind of interesting. So back then the uh, – sort of the newspaper people were sort of in charge of naming the teams giving the names we were called uh, the chicago orphans one year because our manager left us middle of the year (laughs) um back then we we had a young scrappy some would say a little bit hairy team uh and so they called they said oh they play like little bear cubs out there so they called us the cubs and the bears actually got their name off of that so when they moved in here they said are you going to call uh, are you going to call them the Chicago Football Cubs? And George Hallis, owner of the Bears, said, no, 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 we're much bigger and stronger. We're going to be <laughs> full-grown Bears. Nice. So that's how they got their names. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we are going to move out to the Ivy. Uh, just a couple quick things before we go out there. Stay within those stanchions they have set up for you. Um, don't take any of the crushed red brick we have out there on the warning track. We do need it for uh, when the Phillies come in a couple days. And also, <laughs> do not touch the Ivy. Uh, that's the big rule. Don't lean any backpacks up against it. Uh, don't touch it with your hands. Very sensitive to human skin. It's been up there for almost 75 years, so we want to try to <laughs> preserve it as much as we can. Uh, so as long as we understand that, you guys can follow me down this way. Uh, it actually wasn't here until about 1937 they installed the brick wall and the ivy. Mr. Wrigley went out to a ballpark in Indiana, Minor League Park, and saw they had some ivy in their outfield, and he thought that would look really cool at his new ballpark at uh, Wrigley. And so he uh, called up a young groundskeeper, about a 21-year-old guy named Bill Vec Jr. You guys might have heard of him. He's actually owned a lot of uh, uh, baseball teams in his day. Back then, he was just a young groundskeeper about my age. And so he called up Bill Beck and he said, Bill, I'd like to have Ivy all along my brick wall. And Bill said, absolutely, Mr. Wrigley. You give me two to three weeks, I can get that job done, no sweat. (laughs) Mr. Wrigley said, yeah, that's going to be a problem. Because I have investors coming in three days. And they want to see the Ivy. So, uh, Mr. Beck wasn't going to turn away Mr. Wrigley's money. He went out with his team and bought up all the ivy they could find in the tri-state area. Two types of ivy. Uh, They bought up a lot of Boston ivy. That's these big leaves you guys see right here. And then you'll see the tiny strands popping out. That's the uh, Japanese bittersweet ivy that's in there as well. A little harder to see, but it's still there. So they bought up all that ivy and they bought all the Christmas lights they could find. Why'd they get Christmas lights? We didn't have lights here until 1988, and he knew they'd have to work day and night to get this done. So they strung Christmas lights all along the top of this brick wall, and they used chicken wire to string it up. Took them just under 72 hours to get that job done. And as I mentioned, even more incredible than that, this is the original ivy that was put up almost 75 years ago. It has never been replaced. Pretty incredible. Um, And so it it just goes dormant in the winter. You know, if you come here for a tour in March, uh, it's just the roots against this brick wall. Right about now, this time of year, is when it gets to be full bloom. And out in center field, it gets really thick, like almost out to your elbow thick. And so, you know, tons of stuff gets stuck in there. Um, If you're sitting in the bleachers, be careful not to drop your phone, wallet, or keys. They will get stuck in there. If you look really carefully in that corner, Andre Dawson is still there after all these (laughs) years. Stuff really gets stuck in there. Uh, So we do have a rule that's unique to Wrigley Field. Anybody know, if you're an outfielder playing at Wrigley and you see a ball uh, get stuck in the Ivy, does anybody know what you're supposed to do? Throw your hands up. Throw your hands up, that's right. That's right, you throw your hands in the air, the umpire will rule it a ground rule double and you don't have to stick your hands in our Ivy, you can leave the ball there. Now, occasionally, usually a couple times a year, we get an outfielder who thinks that he can find a ball in the Wrigley Ivy. The Wrigley Ivy's undefeated. can't find a ball in there. Uh, My favorite story, Jim Edmonds, multiple time gold glover, fantastic player. He saw a ball go over his head, bounce into the ivy. He must have thought to himself, I'm Jim Edmonds, man. Multiple gold glover. I can find that ball. I know exactly where it went. Stuck his hand into the ivy confidently. Couldn't find a thing. Couldn't find the ball. So this is a fair ball now. So people get to run around the bases. He starts, this is on national TV by the way. He starts shaking the ivy desperately. (laughs) So embarrassed. Finally the ball came out and then a second ball came out. (laughs) No idea where or when it came from. We've had balls found in here that get dated back to the 1940s, it could have been in there for 70 years. (laughs) So the ball came out, he didn't know what to do. He threw one to second, one to third, just trying to get somebody out. <laughs> Only time two balls have been, play, been in play in recent baseball history. So the umps didn't know what to do. They just called a stoppage to the game, watched the replay a couple times to make sure it actually happened, that they didn't imagine it. <laughs> and they called it a ground rule double, and everybody moved on with their day. They told Jim never to do it again. <laughs> and there you go. Um, does anybody before we move up into the bleachers? Does anybody have any uh, questions about this ivy down here? Yeah. Well, is
3: this considered a home run if it falls in that?
2: Room? Yes, if it falls in this basket here, it is considered a home run. Um, and we'll talk in the bleachers about that. It's not just a ball catcher; it's also for uh, catching other things as well. We'll talk about that <laughs> yeah. in a little. So south. when this
1: goes dormant in the wintertime, you still can't see. It's so thick, you still can't see balls inside. Of?
2: You could see balls if they were stuck right around this upper part, but down here, it's basically just like a ball of roots. And so uh, it can be really hard to find them in there. When I tell you about the ball, they find balls that are dated back to the 40s. It's one particular instance. Anthony Rizzo was doing fielding practice out here, and uh, he saw, like, a torn apart baseball, and they gave that one into historians, and they dated it back to, like, 1947 or something like that. Yeah. All right. Yeah, these are the best seats in my opinion. I'm biased, though. Uh, I like to take people out here because uh, this right here in these right field bleachers, this is where I saw my first game. Uh, a little over 10 years ago, my grandpa and I came out here, and the Cubs beat the Brewers 5-2, and we were, one second, yeah, no five. 1415. we stole the tickets back home. Uh, well, now, I should say, we sat in 1415. The ticket says general admission, because that's what this is out here. Unless you're coming for a playoff game, this is all general admission out here in the bleachers. You can come in if you're the first one here. You have your pick of this entire bleacher section, which is pretty cool. Uh, now, I'm going to talk a little bit of history out here. I won't keep us out here too long, because we're in the sun with my complexion. Um, you know, <laughs> it's pretty harmful. But um, first thing I like to talk about out here are the the bleachers themselves. So as I mentioned, they've not always been here, right? We just used to have that wide open outfield with that rope that was held up that marked home runs, ground double, gun rule doubles. Now, what I left out was that rope was held up by Cubs fans and employees. So, you know, Cubs are up to bat. We Just take a nice stretch down here with that rope, walk forward a couple feet, get a better view of the players, you know? Now let's say the Cardinals are up to bat, Oh, stretch up this way walk back about 30 feet cubs led the league in home runs from 1918 to 1928. nobody knows why so eventually after 10 years the league caught on to what they were doing and they made us install we had a uh, temporary wooden wall wooden bleachers and then uh, in 1937 we installed the brick wall ivy and the bleachers you guys are sitting on now now that's not the first time we've had some shenanigans out here, uh, in the outfield. That's, uh, so we changed the, with that practice, we changed the look of this ballpark, but there was actually a practice done by, uh, Cubs fans that, um, changed how all ballparks look nowadays. You guys see, there's that section there, the batter's eye. That's what that's called. That bushy area there. So back in the day, uh, there were seats over there and, um, there was a group of fans that would come out, they'd line up directly behind the pitcher from the batter's eye, and they'd wear white dress shirts (laughs) with black coats over the top. Mm. Now, let's say the Cubs are up to bat. It's kind of chilly out, you know, in those July games. wear a nice black overcoat, black background against that white baseball. Made it really easy to hit. Now, Cardinals come up to bat. It's getting kind of warm out.
3: Take those black jackets
2: off. All white background against a white baseball made it very hard to hit. Now, you may not believe that actually had an effect, but Stan Musial, legendary Cardinal, hated coming here to Wrigley Field because his batting average was 60 points lower. And he blamed it on that practice. It wasn't because of that. Was he having a bad day? Who knows? But he blamed it on that, and he complained to the league enough that the league said, all right, every ballpark now has to have the batter's eye, and if you go to um, if you go to St. Louis to their ballpark, they call it Stan Musial's batter's eye, <laughs> for good reason, right? Uh, and that brings me to you know those kind of shenanigans. I love to talk about the bleacher bums. Anybody here ever heard of the bleacher bums before? Bleacher bums were are some of the best fans in baseball. They still exist to this day. Um, and now you may think, why would they call somebody some of the greatest fans in baseball bums? Here's why. It's actually an affectionate name. Uh, so back uh, say about the early '60s when it was really at its height. We didn't have day base, or we, excuse me, we didn't have night baseball back then, and so there was this group of fans that would be out here every day. The announcers would notice it was the same group of guys every day in the middle of the day on a weekday, and they thought, well, these guys must not have jobs, right? If they're out here in the middle of the day, so they must be bums. So they called them Bleacher Bums. When those guys caught wind of what they were being called, they came out wearing hard hats, carrying lunch pails, and said it was their job to cheer on the Cubs every day. (laughs) Best fans in baseball. Now, unfortunately for the best fans in baseball, we did not have great baseball to be played here in the early to mid-60s. And so that's when the Bleacher Bums became a big craze because they started doing a lot of odd shenanigans out here in the bleachers. I can tell you about one of those. It was called the Bleacher Bum Races. So this wall here now is at an incline. It used to be flat and run from foul pole to foul pole. So you'd have one bum stand on top of the wall at that foul pole, another on top of the wall at that foul pole, and you'd have a bum in the middle holding a handkerchief and an ice cold beverage. (laughs) At the drop of the handkerchief, these guys would run on top of the wall. First one to get there got the beverage for free. Um, now, as you can imagine, we didn't have this basket there either back in the day. As you can imagine, it's fifth or sixth inning, not their first beverage of the day. A little wobbly on top of that wall, which was no thicker than these seats here. So maybe occasionally somebody fell off on of the field. <laughs> Maybe one year it happened 20 times. (laughs) 20 ER visits will wake up Cubs organization real quick, right? So they had to do something about it and they did. They tripled security out here. That stayed pretty much the same to this day. Uh, They also inclined this wall. So as you can see, it's on about a 75 degree angle. Very hard to run on, I have tried. Um, And they've also put this basket, somebody asked me about the basket being easier to get home runs. That's what a lot of people think, that it's more of like a home run ball catcher. It is not a ball catcher. It is a bum catcher, through and through. (laughs) And it's worked pretty well since they installed it in the early 70s. So I love to talk about those bleacher bums uh, for being some great fans. Also while we're out here, we get a great view of some of the other landmarks here at Wrigley. We already talked about the Ivy, that's another one landmark. The other is that scoreboard out there. Now I mentioned it was put up in 1937 and the clock was the only renovation to it. That's true. And it is entirely manually operated. So the center portion with the ball strikes and outs, that is operated from a switchboard up in the press box. It's operated by a guy named Rick Fuse, otherwise known as Quick Rick. Um, They call him Quick Rick because he can call ball strikes and outs quicker than the umpire sometimes. (laughs) Now, most of the time, that's a good thing, but one one time, towards the end of the season, the Cubs were in a bit of a playoff race, and a Cubs outfielder, um, had there was a high fly ball hit toward him. He looked up at the fly ball, then he looked over to the scoreboard and saw that there were two outs. So, he caught the ball, thought it was the third out, Tossed it into the stands to a fan, jogged back to the dugout. His managers are screaming at him. He only caught the second out, but Quick Rick knew that he'd catch it, so he put up the second out too early. We end up losing the game, and it really uh, hit us hard in that playoff race. And so there's some debate amongst Cubs fans. You know, was Rick too quick, or was this, should this guy have known the outs? Rick, have known the Well, exactly. Rick is still here. <laughs> <laughs> that Cubs outfielder is long gone, so I think you know the answer to that question, right? Now those two side portions are operated entirely from the inside. It's a six to eight man crew depending on the game, uh, moving metal tiles around with numbers on them uh, for the entire game. That is the, uh, on top of the, like, the grounds crew, they are the hardest working people here at Wrigley. Um, mainly because they're working inside an unrenovated metal box from 1937, right? So, you know, in March, we get those kind of cold games. It can actually be below zero in there sometimes. No heat, no AC. So we had our hottest recorded temperature in there in 2019, about 120 degrees on a 100 degree day here in Chicago. Yeah, really hot and steamy in there. So no heat, no AC, and perhaps worst of all, no plumbing for a whole game. So uh, I'll tell you this much. So if you look at, it says Cubs and Inning, and then there's like a tiny little pipe running down. On the top of that pipe is a funnel. <laughs> and I'll leave the rest to your imagination. <laughs> Oddly enough, nobody knows where that pipe goes. Uh, some people say St. Louis. <laughs> some people say the visitor's clubhouse. Frankly, nobody wants to find out. So, now, I, I do like to note, they do love working up there. It's a, it's a great honor. Not a lot of people get to operate up there. Um, and so, the guy that runs the scoreboard now, his father ran the scoreboard and his grandfather ran it. So it's a family business which is pretty cool right uh, now a couple other things we can see while we're down here these flags going atop the rooftop we've got a lot of notable flags these are the only ones that fly on non-game days now uh the first couple flags when they were originally put up said 1907 and 1908 that's because the original purpose for those flags was to put up a flag for every world championship the cubs would ever win it was a great plan It was a really great plan, Um, but, you know, of course it took us a while to win our next one. So we started putting up flags for anything we could win. Playoff appearances, division titles, uh, conference titles. Rizzo won a charity ping pong tournament. We had a flag. Um, We even have a flag for the year 2020. I'm not sure that commemorates that we won anything. I think it might just be the year in general, maybe.
3: Um,
2: So those are some of our flags we have up there. We also used to have some. They're not up anymore. We had some that commemorated uh, great achievements. Um, We had KW 20, that's uh, Kerry Woods' 20 strikeout game in his rookie year. Hack 191, Hack Wilson's 191 RBI season, a record that has yet to be broken. And Sammy 66, Sammy Sosa's uh, 66 home run season when he was racing with Mark McGuire to break the home run record. So we don't have those up anymore, but they're still big parts of this ballpark. Now, flags that you can't see, uh, because they're not up today, we fly them on game days. These four uh, silver poles here fly our World Series pennants and our 2016 National League pennant. We also, on the foul poles, have the uh, numbers of our uh, our retired numbers here. Jackie Robinson, of course, number 42, the only number to be retired by all of baseball. Banks, Williams, Sandberg, just to name a few of the numbers that we have on those foul poles on a given day. But I can't get through the flag talk without talking about our most important flag, the W flag, right? So when we win a game, for those of you who don't know, We raise a W flag on top of that ship's mast up there. It's actually from a ship that uh, used to be owned by the Wrigleys. And so uh, when we win a game, we fly that W. When we lose a game, we fly a blue flag that says an L on it. Nobody knows what it means. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But what's funny is that that actually started off as an early notification system. You know, Way back in the day, we didn't have our phones with the ESPN app to tell us exactly when the Cubs won. So when people would come back from work uh, at at the end of the day on the red line, they'd look up at the ship's mast to see whether the Cubs had won or lost that day. And I I got to move down here. I moved down here um, right after that 2016 World Series win, and it was Awesome. I believe I actually came down uh, for a class of Second City the day after uh, we won the World Series and we we flew that W flag for the entire offseason and there were W's in every single storefront, every single residence all over the place. We flew that W from here to downtown. It was really a, quite a sight to see so that's a very important flag uh, that the Cubs have here. Now one more thing I'm going to talk about before we make our way up to uh, the upper deck are these rooftop lights. We did not have night baseball here until 1988. We were the last team by 40 years to get lights. The Detroit Tigers got theirs in 48. We waited a little while and got ours. Now, we wanted to have night baseball here back in 1941. November 1941, they got the place all wired up. They had lights ready to go. However, December 7, 1941... Pearl Harbor occurred, US enters the war effort, and the Cubs donated their lights to a flight school that was training pilots for the war. Um, and so you'd think we'd just buy new lights, but William Wrigley didn't actually think night baseball was going to catch on. And so he didn't make the investment, and we chose not to make the investment for a very long time until August 8th, 1988. 8888 very easy date for me to remember on these tours um we had our first night game here at wrigley field sold out crowd huge production we had a our oldest season ticket holder a 92 year old gentleman go out to home plate there was a button and he said let there be lights into a microphone he smacked that button and we had night baseball here at wrigley for the first time for two whole innings (laughs) game got rained out six hours of rain what can you do Harry Carey famously said it was God's way of telling us we shouldn't have night baseball here at Wrigley. (laughs) So we had our first official night game here, August 9th, 1988. But that was not the first night game ever played here. Back in 1942, the Women's League did it. They rolled in temporary lights and put them in the outfield and played their all-star game here. Uh, The Women's League was actually started right here at Wrigley Field we held the tryouts here. And um, the movie, League of Their Own, uh, filmed a lot of their in-game scenes right here so there's a lot of women's baseball history here as well all right uh, before we make our way up to the upper deck uh, does anybody have any questions for me? Yeah? Are you
3: going to talk about uh, the, the designs
2: and oh, like like the, the yeah, yeah, the rooftop seats back there? Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll, we'll talk about that when we get a better view okay, up there. Right. Yeah, good, good question, yeah. <laughs> Am I going to take you to whose seat? Bartman's. I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> Barman seat. Moore, so. Yeah, fine. Everybody asks once a tour. Bartman, Bartman sat right over uh, kind of where that uh, wall starts to incline, maybe a little bit further down. Um, yeah, that's where he sat. The seat is no longer there. We renovated, um, but uh, it's he sat right over there. Yeah. And for the record, if you know the story of Steve Bartman, uh, a lot of people, a lot of people reached for that ball, and it was very unfair that he got vilified uh, and was kind of driven out of town. Um, to end the story on a, on a heartwarming note, he was given a World Series ring by the Cubs in 2016. So. He Of course he accepted. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not going to turn down World Series ring. Alright, right, uh, so we're going to make our way up to the, uh, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. Where are the bullpen? bullpens? are actually right under our feet. They're underneath the bleachers now. Uh, so the Cubs bullpen is behind those Gallagher doors, and then there's a Sloan door that leads into the visitors bullpen. It's a good question.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, so we're going to go up into the upper deck, um, just a couple things before we go up there. We're gonna walk sort of up a few ramps to get up there. and so if anybody has any mobility issues you think you may not be able to uh, get up there, just uh, talk to Brian in the back and he can find you an elevator. We're gonna go um, we're gonna go like just to the right of the press box so we'll take that elevator that's kind of near the uh, front front doors up there. Um, but yeah, if you guys want to follow me up, we'll head up.
0: We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LaVon Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LaVon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as as productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LaVon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LaVon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805. 8871 that's 7138058871 or contact the bond at sold at pitneyproperties.com.
2: that says laundry. That is true. It is a laundry room. It's also a back door to the visitors clubhouse. Now it stays locked, security guarded. don't try to go in there. But um, I always like to point it out because it's above-ground, right? It's the only above-ground clubhouse in all of baseball. And the reason it's up there is because it's the original location where it was built in 1914. And the reason they did that is because we were so close to the lake, they didn't have the technology back then to know when they were gonna run into the water table. So they figure why take the risk? They built it above ground. Now, uh, before I started working here, it was the smallest visitors clubhouse in all of baseball. Uh, As you can imagine, pretty old, not a lot of amenities. Uh, Now we've renovated it quite a bit. We've added tons more floor space, manager's office, really nice dining rooms, some extra shower heads, lots of cool things in there. So we were the smallest clubhouse. Now, we're the smallest clubhouse. (laughs) We tried, we tried, guys. But you know, I like to say it's not about the size in there, it's the history. I've said multiple sports have been played here. It's not just baseball, though. we've had plenty of baseball stars in there. Like I said, Robinson, Ruth, um, Jordan, Michael Jordan.
3: Michael Jordan,
2: who dressed for a baseball game in there back when he played minor league. There was an exhibition game here. Uh, We've also had Pele, we've had soccer here. Pele was in there. 50 years of Bears football was played here. So of course, the Bears were never in there. The Vince Lombardi's Packers, Jim Brown, they all used that locker room. Oddly enough, the hot water never seemed to work when the Packers came to town, but uh, what can you do? It's an old place, even back then, right? Uh, now, I always like to tell this story because uh, it happened right here. So, of course, with it being an older clubhouse, they don't have a lot of amenities. There's no spa, no, you know, player's lounge, no game console. They do have a gaming console in there. It's called cribbage. That's what they've got. That's true, it's just cribbage in there. Um, And so the rookies, when they come here for the first time, they like to complain. You know, where's my my amenities? Where's this? Where's that? And so we had a veteran, um, we have Atlanta Braves fans here. Okay, Uh, Chipper Jones. Chipper Jones started this practice uh, where if a rookie started complaining, he'd say, hey, right out this door here, there's a nice player's lounge. Everything you could want. So a lot of times these rookies, they take a hot shower, they put on a towel, and they'd walk right for that door, uh. and Chipper Jones would be right, be- right behind him. He'd push walk. him out and lock the door. <laughs> now this is usually about an hour before game time, so fans, all over. The place. So these guys would then have to do the Wrigley Walk of Shame,
3: back down these ramps, <laughs> <fans, laughs> up into the <laughs> stairs.
2: Um, it's Chipper was sort of the last person to do it. The most recently I heard of it happening was Yasiel Puig when he was a rookie. So it happened to him as well. Another another great rookie practice that just happened while we're touching on it, uh, whenever the Marlins come to town, they send their rookies to get them coffee dressed in full Marlins uniform. Ah! It takes some hours. They get harassed the whole way. <laughs> you guys can follow me up this way. Nice. Any Bears fans? Okay, just for you two. Great. You guys can block this out. You know, you don't have to. So, this is the uh, classic marquee sign. Another one of our landmarks here. On the other side, of course, it's that you know famous red color. This, these colors on the back. This is a replica of the original design that was here in 1914. Now, uh, the Bears started playing here in 1921. Bears fans, any reason? uh, Can you think of any reason why George Halas would have a problem with these? colors. (laughs)
3: colors.
2: <laughs> Those are the Packers colors. Green Bay Packers colors. Oldest rivalry in football. George Hallis, when Wrigley uh, was trying to get the Bears to move in here, he said, we'll move in here, but you have to change that sign. So he did. They painted it a blue color about a year or so later, and then they painted it red in the 30s. It's another uh, little kept secret here I'd like to show you guys on the way. Um, now, as we're up here, I'd just like to point out a couple of things. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, these two billboard or scoreboards that were put up the Trust and the Budweiser um, They were put up about seven or eight years ago when I came here for my first game They were not here about ten years ago. It's pretty incredible to me because I am a Cubs fan But I grew up in uh, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin And so we saw all our games at Miller Park. Miller Park is a very modern ballpark with a retractable roof So it was shocking to me that the score was kept on a scoreboard like that But I loved it because it felt like you were stepping back in time I think the renovations have done a good job of modernizing the place while also uh keeping it with that classic feel now uh one we've got a lot of notable home runs here one i like to talk about in reference to that budweiser scoreboard kyle schwarber great cub that uh, now plays for the nationals he hit a ball that landed we thought it went over the top of the budweiser scoreboard it landed directly on top and while he was a cub here we kept that ball encased in plexiglass on the budweiser scoreboard it's no longer up there now but uh, they used to call it the Budweiser scoreboard. They did that for a few years while he was here. Uh, no, Believe it or not, no batted baseball has ever hit that center field scoreboard. We've had a couple of guys go right or left of it, never went in directly at that scoreboard. We did have a golf ball hit it in the 50s. It's the only ball to ever hit that scoreboard. Sam Snead, for a little bit of seventh inning entertainment, he teed off from home plate and the first one he hit went smack dab right in the center. Um, and I, probably my favorite home runs, two of my favorite home runs, one was hit by Glenn Allen Hill. It went through the window of that yellow building there uh, back when it was a residence. And so the woman uh, was, that lived in there, as the legend goes, was watching the game and, on TV and then a ball crashed through her window. She picked up the ball, looked at the TV and watched it go through her window on National <laughs> television. So there's actually footage on YouTube of her you know, waving that ball outside the window, pretty cool. Um, my favorite home run, though, was hit by Sammy Sosa. Went so far out onto Kenmore Avenue, right uh, behind the wind Trust sign there, that only one person saw it land. And so he uh, marked it with an X, or it was rather with spray paint, he uh, marked it. And so that mark is still there. They preserve it even after they pave the road. But every time they pave the road, it seems that that mark moves back a <laughs> little bit. So if you want to see the site of the 800 foot Sammy Sosa home run, it's all the way out there on Kenmore. Now the uh, last thing I like to talk about while we're up here is this press box. Um, Some very notable notable names have come through there. I like to talk about this guy in that room right now. Um, Right in front of him, you'll see that little uh, brown rectangle there, the second box. That is the uh, Lowry Organ where Gary Pressy played. Uh, Maybe you've never heard of Gary Pressy, but Gary Pressy was the organist here for 32 years. He just retired last season. Um, 32 years, never missed a home game. That's almost 2,700 straight games. He's the Cal Ripken Jr. of organists, and we're trying to get a statue for him here. He's just an amazing guy, um, and we love to honor him. Now we've got a new organist, and he's also doing a great job. Uh, notable uh, broadcasters, uh, down in the last booth, you guys might see it when we go down to the field, it says Marquee Sports Network. Uh, there's the booth down there. Uh, Jack Brickhouse, a notable broadcaster. That's why we have the hey hey on both foul poles. Uh, he, whenever a home run would go out, he'd go back, 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 hey hey, a home run, he got it. That was Jack Brickhouse's famous call. And then of course, we can't talk about the press box without talking about Harry Carey, right? Harry Carey, not just known for being impersonated on SNL by Will Ferrell, is a beloved icon in sports, um, beloved broadcaster, mostly known for singing along to the seventh inning stretch um, during the games. Now, most people don't know that actually started off as an accident. Back when he worked for the Cardinals, uh, he loved to sing along with the stretch, but he would turn his mic off and just like to listen to the fans. When he came over here to the Cubs, um, he actually accidentally left his mic on. And so the fans loved hearing him sing. He didn't know that it happened, but they loved hearing him sing. And the Cubs owner said, you have to keep doing that for every game. And so until he passed in 98, Harry Carey sang along with the seventh inning stretch every single game. Now ever since his passing, we've had plenty of famous people come in and sing it. Bill Murray is a Chicago classic. He comes back and does it quite a bit. Vince Vaughn has done it also. Um, Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam has done it. My personal favorite from 2019, Cookie Monster. He did a great job, it, thing, I don't know. (laughs) What is C for? What is C for? (laughs) (laughs) Cookie. Never got to do my Cookie Monster (laughs) impression on tour before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, if you can leave here with any piece of advice that I can give you today, if you get famous enough to sing the seventh inning stretch, please sing it poorly. You will be remembered for far longer than if you sing it well, I promise you that. We've had some terrible ones here, just to name a few. Jeff Gordon, great NASCAR driver, right? Right before he sang the seventh-inning stretch, he said, it's great to be here at Wrigley Stadium. They booed him the entire song. Nobody sang along with him. Wrigley Stadium? It's Wrigley Field, man. Uh, We had Kid Rock, great musician. Uh, Well, I guess not to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, that was great. Okay. <laughs> Kid Rock. Kid Rock sang, sang the song well. Um, but somebody told me, you know, the Cubs were down, so you got to say, all right, Cubs fans, let's get some runs at the end of the song, right? Well, he finished the song, and he must not have heard the guy correctly because he said, okay, Cubs fans, let's go get lunch. <laughs> it's 9 p.m. night game. Everybody was super confused at that. Uh, now, perhaps one of the worst of all time is by one of Chicago's most beloved figures, Mike Ditka. Poor Ditka, uh, poor guy. He had a charity golf tournament earlier that day that ran long, and he had to run up all those ramps we had here. Didn't have elevators when he was here. So he ran up all those ramps. He was so out of breath. But when he got into the booth, Gary Pressy immediately started playing, and he set the speed record for the seventh-inning stretch. Take me out of the ball game, take me out It was so bad. Um, all the children were horrified here. You get to, you get to talk to um, Clay, a tour guide here, he was at that game uh, listening to that. So he can tell you about it. But uh, nobody beats Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne for the worst. Um, can't really describe it well, but it was so bad that both dugouts cleared. Players and coaches came out to the, to, to the infield, looked up at the press box, and said, What is dying in the press box? Such a bad idea. So, if you come here, sing it poorly. I'll, maybe you'll get mentioned on my tour, right?
3: I'll
2: do an impression of you. All right. Well, i think that i have just about exhausted my really facts um does anybody have any questions before we move on huh? okay well we're going to head down to the field as long as that's as we're still interested yes. Yes? yes wow that was terrible are we Yes. okay just a, yeah oh the rooftops i forgot to talk about rooftops thank you so these rooftop seats i'll give you a little history behind them uh there are about uh, 16 rooftops up there and it obviously didn't have bleachers on them all the time. Uh, back in the old days, they used to just have uh, fans that lived in the buildings would go up there with a few people and watch the games. However, they, when they started broadcasting the games on WGN, Harry Carey would have the cameras zoom in uh, on those people and say, oh, isn't that a great place to catch a ball game? Tons of people agreed with it. And so people flooded these rooftops. We had parties of one to 200 people on these very small, very old rooftops uh, we have a tour guide here named Tom who went to one of those parties. He said that there was a place covered in caution tape where they couldn't stand because it was called the sock stop. <laughs> Largely unregulated, these rooftops. So the city stepped in and eventually they were bought out by bars and restaurants and now you have reinforced bleachers on top. Usually you can get tickets for one, 200 bucks, all you can eat, all you can drink. Um, one fun story about these rooftops, out there in right center field, there's a brick one that's a little bit longer than the rest. Back in 1994, Tom Browning, a great pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. He pitched the day before, so he wasn't doing anything during this game that day. He got kind of bored. He said to his bench coach, "No, I'm not feeling so good. I'm going to go into the clubhouse." He snuck into the clubhouse, put on a black jacket, and snuck up to that rooftop. Nobody caught him until the 8th inning when Kerry Carey uh, was looking, he said, "Who's that? Who's that out there on that on that rooftop?" They had him zoom in, and it was there was Tom Browning sitting on the edge of the rooftop with beer in one hand and a hot dog in the other.
3: <laughs> Full
2: Cincinnati Reds uniform. Everybody loved it, except his managers. They fined him $1,000 for it. He said it was the best $1,000 hot dog he's ever had.
3: <laughs> and
2: we even recreated that moment, 2019, my first season, on the twenty fifth year anniversary, uh, in the middle of a random Cincinnati Reds game. They said, who's that out there in right center field? And it was Tom Browning, 25 years older, with his leg dangling on the side with a beer and a hot dog. That's awesome, right? Alright, so we are going to head down to the field. Just a couple of rules. Um, Don't take anything with you. There's not too much to take, but uh, just kind of leave anything that's lying around alone down there. Also, don't leave anything down there. Phone, wallet, keys. Also, I'm required to tell you this. Let's say uh, your longtime family member uh, loved the Cubs and wanted to be at Wrigley Field forever, right? Some of you are ahead of me. (laughs) If you brought your loved one today with you, leave them in the... Earn or thing that you brought them in I'm required to tell you that's why I say it. sorry to end on a somber note follow me <laughs> so I just want to let you know appreciate you guys for coming out today so much you know the job I had to take in between was working the guest service desk at Target Oh. And uh, not a bad place to work, but I mean, like compared to Wrigley Field, you know.
3: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's
2: kind of how you look in the cookie monster. <laughs> Can I help you look?
3: somebody
2: We'll pitch that reality show, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I just wanted to thank you guys so much. I know we can't all leave Cubs fans today, but can you promise me that we're at least all Wrigley Field fans? See you guys out front. Thank you for coming.